Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Hot Topics in Specialty Pharmacy, where we chat with practitioners and leaders to discuss topics relevant to the specialty pharmacy workforce, business, practice, and our profession. My name is Autumn Zuckerman, and I am the Director of Health Outcomes and Research at Vanderbilt Specialty Pharmacy. Joining me today are Christabel Lowe, a PGY-1 Health System Pharmacy Administration and Leadership Resident at UW Medicine, Alexis L. Corey, a PGY-1 Resident at Trellis Rx, and Samantha Manson, a PGY-1 Resident at WVU Medicine. In this episode, we will be discussing their specialty pharmacy-focused resident research projects. Welcome, everyone. To get us started, could you each introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your position? Sure. So my name is Samantha Manson, and I am currently the PGY-1 community-based specialty pharmacy resident through WVU Medicine. I completed a dual degree program and earned my PharmD and MBA from West Virginia University in 2022. And although I am one of 20 residents at WVU Medicine, my practice site is Allied Health Solutions Specialty Pharmacy. My specific program is longitudinal in nature and includes five core learning experiences. So teaching, patient care, leadership and administration, dispensing or medication use, and of course, research. Hi, everyone. My name is Alexis L. Corey. I am a community resident at Trellis Rx Specialty Pharmacy. We are predominantly specialty focused, so we have multiple disease states, including neurology, autoimmune, we have cardiology, among many others as well. My background, I graduated from Youngstown State University with a biochemistry bachelor's of science. I continued on to get my PharmD at Northeast Ohio Medical University. My passion for specialty pharmacy really started as a patient, so I myself have multiple sclerosis and I learned about, you know, the ins and outs of specialty pharmacy that way, really decided that that was my passion and I wanted to get involved and help patients just like me from a peer and from a provider level. So I got involved in specialty that way. Myself and one of my friends, we developed the Student Association of Specialty Pharmacy at Northeast Ohio Medical University. So one of the chapters of NASP or National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. And we got involved with a lot of national organizations to advocate and create educational pieces for patients in the patient populations. Hi, everybody. My name is Christabel Lowe. I am currently a PGY-1 resident, um, a health system pharmacy administration and leadership resident at UW Medicine on the informatics track. For my program, the first year is all of clinical practice. And then the second year, I'll be more administrative, including some technology and informatics focused rotations. I'm also currently a candidate for the Masters of Health Informatics and Health Information Management program. My background, I actually got my PharmD degree from the University of Michigan before moving over to Seattle, Washington for my residency. In my residency, I got the opportunity to participate in doing some research with the specialty pharmacy focus and learn more about that area. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Well, you guys have some really great backgrounds. We're so thankful that you made your way to specialty pharmacy and appreciate the work that you've been doing this year in your research projects. So for the rest of the podcast, we will turn it over to our guests, to each of you, to share with us a little background on your research project, your project design, and key outcomes. And we'll start with Samantha. 
Awesome. Thank you. So the title of the project that I'll mainly be talking about today is the impact of pharmacist intervention on the collection of sustained virologic response tests in patients treated for hepatitis C at a health system specialty pharmacy. And just for completeness sake to those listening and to make sure everyone is kind of on the same page, hepatitis C is of course treated very effectively with direct acting antivirals. And the way to assess this efficacy is sustained virologic response or or SVR, which is defined as undetectable HCV RNA at least 12 weeks after those patients have completed treatment. So background, at the time of this project, we had three pharmacists on our infectious disease team. So probably similar to the other residents, we have multiple patient care teams here at the specialty pharmacy. And so with the infectious disease team, a lot of what we do is hepatitis C treatment. And those patients are, of course, then receiving direct acting antivirals from us. And I actually completed a project prior to the one that I'm going to be talking about today that was intended to help with the development of the pharmacist intervention activities for the project that I'll be talking about. So when we were first discussing potential projects at the beginning of my residency year, the preceptors at my site acknowledged that they wanted to do something to increase the number of patients who received SVR labs after treatment, but they weren't quite sure what to do or where to start with that. And we brainstormed the idea of a research project to kind of review our patients and see if we could identify any barriers for our own patients based on their demographic information. So that first project was just the evaluation of factors impacting the collection of these tests in our patients, thinking things like rural versus urban, what medication they used, what their copay was, primary payer, social determinants of health, so on. After collecting that information for that first project, we didn't really find any major differences between the patients that did and didn't receive testing, but we did identify that social determinants of health goes largely undocumented, which that's probably not a new finding, but at least having that kind of in writing for us gave us leverage to move forward. And that kind of left us with an additional plan to create different intervention types to meet this kind of unknown variable of not knowing what would work best for our patients. So on to the current study, there's really virtually no data available to provide population statistics on how many patients actually go to receive HCV RNA testing after they've completed treatment. Most of the information that you'll find when you look into that is looking at actual SVR rates in terms of were they cured or not, not the SVR collection rate. So we really only had our own information to compare to. And so our primary objective was to assess the impact of pharmacist intervention on the collection of SVR tests by identifying the percentage of patients who received lab testing within one month after pharmacist intervention. And then our secondary objectives were to essentially determine if there was a specific intervention that we created that worked best for those patients in terms of getting them to go to get their labs or if there was something else that maybe could help us hone in on something for our current practice. So this was a prospective observational evaluation that included adult patients receiving a direct acting antiviral prescribed by a WVU medicine provider and were due for SVR test collection during about a three-month period of November the 1st, 2022 to January the 31st of 2023. And to identify our estimated SVR collection rates prior to this intervention project, we looked at essentially two different statistics. So the first one was just our historical average from 2018 to 
2022 of our SER collection rate, which this is already being collected on our clinical oversight committee and our quality management committee. So this wasn't any result that was similar to the testing environment, but it did give us a 57% SVR collection rate to go off of. But then we wanted to dive a little bit deeper to see if the data three months prior to the study could be more specific and we could tailor that based on, of course, exclusion criteria and so on to make it as similar to our study population as we could. So we did look at that data three months prior to the implementation of the pharmacist intervention and found a 55% SVR collection rate, so still fairly similar. So that was kind of our baseline to start to compare to. Now, in terms of the actual pharmacist interventions that we created, we developed those within our existing specialty pharmacy patient management program to help prompt our pharmacists to complete the intervention activities according to the study protocol. And the way that this would work is... As normal, once pharmacists saw their HCV outcomes activity come due, they would do chart review to see if those SVR labs were already available. And if they were already completed, then, of course, pharmacist intervention was not required. And if they were not completed, that's when they would be evaluated, of course, for pharmacist intervention. We found 72 total patients that were due for SVR labs during that period, but only 34 of them met our inclusion criteria. And then of those 34 patients, 16 did not have SVR labs completed. So those were our population to focus on the interventions with. So the way that the interventions would work is every patient that needed an intervention would get a phone call from a pharmacist, ultimately to just do a quick reminder to say, hey, you received treatment from us. It's now time to get your labs to confirm that you've been cured, so on and so forth. Of course, triaging if there was a lab order already in place and all of those things. So we didn't really give the pharmacists a specific thing that they had to say, but it was more so to serve as a reminder to them. If the patient was not reached at that initial phone call, then they would go on to our second intervention, which was either a patient portal message or a letter in the mail. So if patients were reached at that initial phone call, then a course, we didn't pursue any additional intervention because the pharmacist had spoken to the patient at that point and kind of developed a plan. In order to determine how we were going to do the second intervention, so that message via patient portal or letter, it was really just if the patient was active on the EHR, then we would send it that way. And if not, we would send them a letter in the mail. And that was our aim with that first project in terms of looking at maybe rural versus non-rural, if they had access to those types of things to see if we could reach them where they're at, essentially. And then in order to kind of determine our outcome, a second chart review occurred one month after the initial intervention. So that very first phone call, and then one month later, our pharmacist would do chart review again to see if they had collected SVR labs at that point. And so seven of the 16 patients did receive SVR testing. Three was after intervention one, and four was after intervention two. And then a total of 25 patients out of all 34 included received SVR testing, which that's essentially the method that we determine our overall SVR collection rate in general. So that gave us a 73.5% collection rate. So about 16 to 19% increase over our previous rates with pharmacist intervention. So we can essentially interpret that as an additional seven patients received SVR testing due to that intervention. And then as far as the secondary objectives go, we still didn't really see 
a difference in demographics versus patients that did and did not receive SVR testing based on pharmacist intervention. But we did use a logistic regression analysis to compare our pre and post intervention data. And we found that the odds of receiving SVR testing after pharmacist intervention were found to be 2.6 times the odds without pharmacist intervention. It was only found to be marginally statistically significant with a p-value of 0.0577. But to us, you know, this really makes it seem that pharmacist intervention has a clinically significant impact on SVR collection rates. And really, because we didn't find any difference in the characteristics and specific intervention types that work best for patients, our plan is to just continue these intervention activities as they were developed for all of our patients that haven't received SVR tests when they're initially due, and then continuing, hopefully, with some type of an extension study. And we do know that a limitation of the study was sample size. As with a lot of our projects, we have to do them within a limited time frame, and so we couldn't include everyone. However, we, as mentioned, are continuing these protocols and intervention activities that were developed for the study just as part of normal patient care. And we plan to continue to collect this data as part of another study to really solidify the significance of pharmacist intervention on the outcomes of our patients with hepatitis C. Thank you so much, Samantha. That was a really interesting study and an important finding. I think that we can definitely learn from that, that health system specialty pharmacists can make a big impact in collecting SVR rates, which is important in clinical care. So thank you so much for your work. And with that, we will transition to Alexis. Thank you, Autumn. Hi, my name is Alexis Elcori, and I will be presenting my outcomes research project on health system specialty pharmacist interventions in multiple sclerosis. So before we get started, just kind of want to go over some of the background information. So what is multiple sclerosis? It's an autoimmune-related chronic progressive disease. It causes demyelination of the central nervous system. And as of right now, it's estimated to affect 2.8 million people worldwide. 1 million are estimated to be in the U.S. I'm not sure if that's a bottlenose effect from our genetic population, environmental factors, or potential access to care and awareness that's causing a higher prevalence of diagnoses. Next, I would like to discuss some of our disease-modifying therapies. So these are immunomodulating therapies that lower the immune activity or reduce the hyperactivity of the immune system to reduce MS severity and potentially slow disease progression. So we have some examples of injectables being interferon betas, glutiramir acetate, or Kesimpta. Some of our oral options are our fumaric acid derivatives. We have teraflunamide and fingolimod or gelenia. And then some of our infusion therapies would include ocrelizumab or ocrevus and natalizumab or tisabri. So the reason why we wanted to do this research project was to really bridge the gap that we find in literature. So as of right now, the traditional role that we're seeing that's detailed for pharmacists in MS states that specialty pharmacy management programs can improve medication adherence, persistence, and compliance. We also know that HSSP programs can reduce hospitalization in patients with MS and that we can facilitate medication access, assist with prior authorizations and financial assistance, as well as provide counseling and treatment monitoring. But what are we doing in between that's really adding benefit to our clinical staff and our patients? So one thing that we really want to try to do is bridge that gap in patient care where potentially our neurologists are getting a little burnt out. So over the past decade, the number of patients with MS has almost doubled, whereas the number of neurology providers has stayed about the same. So this results in an average of two office visits per year for a patient with their neurology provider. Recent studies do show that 60% of neurologists report at least one symptom of burnout. So 
as a health system specialty pharmacist, we could try to bridge that gap, dedicate time for extra counseling and questions for the patients, and offset those number of neurology appointments. So what does our HSSP program do in our clinics? So we are integrated into the clinics. We are inside of our neurology offices and we have our pharmacists and our liaisons or our technicians. So our liaisons are responsible for onboarding our patients into our system. So they're going to coordinate medication refills, data collections, and patient reported outcomes. They'll do benefits investigations, financial assistance, and prior authorizations. Our pharmacists in turn will then provide provider support. We'll coordinate care with patients, provide assistance with coverage and access, and we're going to be doing all of the initial and ongoing counsels and clinical interventions. So now let's go into our study. So the purpose of our study, like I mentioned, was to try to bridge that gap in literature to state what are we doing in between what's known that we already do. So what interventions are we completing to help assist our patients and the acceptance rates in these MS populations? We also further broke down our intervention types into reasons, recommendations, and acceptance rates. So the methods for our study, it was a retrospective, multi-center, observational descriptive study. It was conducted from October of 2019 to August of 2022. We included adult patients on disease-modifying therapies that were managed by our HSSP services. They did require to have at least one documented clinical intervention. Our interventions were then broken down into four categories, adherence, adverse drug reaction, drug information, hospitalization, laboratory, referral of service, regimen, and vaccine. We then broke these down into reason for intervention, recommendation from the pharmacist, and the outcomes. So let's take a look at our results. Our top four intervention categories were adherence, regimen, adverse drug reaction, and laboratory, where adherence was about 30% of our total interventions, regimen was about 28%, adverse drug reaction about 21%, and laboratory about 15%. So looking at the main intervention reasons for adherence, forgetfulness was about 33% of the reason, access difficulties was about 30%. For regimen, we had the most was evaluation of regimen appropriateness, regimen was incorrect, regimen ineffective, or regimen intolerable. Next, we have our adverse drug reactions, which are split about 50-50 between the next two options, which is patient has a confirmed ADR and patient has a potential ADR. So pharmacists are responsible for determining, okay, is this from the drug that we're managing or is it potentially something else that's causing these symptoms? And then for lab, was required to ensure that drug is appropriate and effective, which was about 60%, and then lab outside of normal limits, which was 41%. So what did we see that these interventions were done. So what were the recommendations that pharmacists made? The number one recommendation for adherence would be consulting with the prescriber, which is about 50%. Also recommendations of lifestyle modifications and providing disease drug education. For regimen, continue therapy was 47%. And I know that might seem silly. Why are we doing an intervention that says continue therapy? Well, for this situation, I like to bring up a patient that I had worked with, a 29-year-old male who had progressive multiple sclerosis. So he reported symptoms of worsening weakness, of increased numbness or sensory disturbances, and he called in concerned that his new therapy was not working. After we had a conversation, did a little bit of digging to find out what was going on, I found out that he had increased his workout regimen by almost double in the past two weeks. He had started a stimulant that helped with his fatigue, but now he had so much energy, he didn't know what to do with himself. So after discussing with him, we realized that this is not a true relapse. This is what would be called a pseudo relapse or a condition where you're having an increase in symptoms due to either an external stimulant or having something that's 
aggravating your disease state. So heat, extra stress, overexertion, these can exacerbate your symptoms without having a true clinical relapse. So in this situation, had we not intervened and determined the root cause, the patient potentially would have discontinued a therapy that is actually working for him and providing him relief from his disease and reducing that progression. So that's a situation where pharmacists can really intervene to help educate and make sure that patients are on the right course for their therapy. Additionally, for regimen, we also coordinated office visits, recommended to change therapy and change the doses. For adverse drug reactions, we would counsel on mitigation strategies, coordinate office visits, potentially discontinue therapies, or add on over-the-counter medications to help mitigate those side effects. For laboratory, we would schedule laboratory tests, consult with the prescriber, or continue therapy with close monitoring. So for scheduling laboratory tests, a lot of these medications require a lot of laboratory values to make sure that the medication is going to be safe. So for Ocrevus, for example, we're going to make sure we want to check different monitoring parameters. So hepatitis or tuberculosis, these should be tested prior to therapy start to make sure that patient is a candidate for this medication. If a medication is sent over with the referral to our pharmacy service, we're going to make sure that everything that's required to start therapy is going to be available and to make sure it's safe for the patient to take. Next, continuing therapy with close monitoring. An example I like to state for this one is Jelenia or one of our S1P modulators. The medication sequesters your lymphocytes into your lymph nodes. So what can happen is that sometimes patients will have what's called grade four lymphopenia or lymphocytes less than 0.2. In the clinical trials, they actually discontinued medication in these patients. But in clinical practice, sometimes that's not what we end up doing. So what we usually will do is see, okay, did the patient have any infections? Has their disease been controlled on this medication? If so, and they're still doing well, we might continue therapy with close monitoring. So to go on to our outcomes, we found that 85.3% of our recommendations were accepted, only 3.79% were declined, and 10.91% required follow-up or escalation to provider. We did not have a secondary analysis to see if these interventions that required follow-up were then accepted or declined. So I wanted to talk about where pharmacists had the most impact. So we looked at the proportion of days covered for adherence, and the typical adherence ranges from 52 to 92.8% in our multiple sclerosis patients. Could not find any literature that came to an exact average. It was a very large range. But one thing I did want to note that our HSSP PDC was actually 94%. So utilization of a health system specialty pharmacy can really improve adherence by managing all of the different portions that we mentioned. So making sure that patients are adherent, making sure they're on the correct regimen, making sure that we're managing those adverse drug reactions so that they can continue on therapy and have an improved quality of life. So those are really important. It has been noted in many different literatures that patients have improved disease response to adherence to medications. So as long as a patient is on their disease-modifying therapy and it's working well for them, it's efficacious, then we will see better results in the outcomes. Next, for our regimen, we have higher touch points. So pharmacists are more accessible. We reach out with our HSSP services at every single refill where our liaisons will connect with the patient. And if there's anything that's concerning, they'll be transferred over to a pharmacist for communication. So we have potential earlier identification of regimen concerns, which can reduce disease progression and disability. For adverse drug reactions, one thing I want to mention was that all recommendations, so 100% of pharmacist recommendations were accepted for discontinuation of intolerable medications, adding on an over-the-counter medication, or adding on a prescription. So this helps to support the adherence and conserve their quality of life. Lastly, for laboratory assessments, we help to bridge that communication gap, which supports faster lab draws, faster results, and potential therapy changes. 
So what do we want to do for the future? So we can get collaborative practice agreements for continued support of our neurology staff. We can utilize online dashboards to collect outcomes data and continue advancing our practice of pharmacy. We can complete accreditation council for pharmacy education or ACPE accredited continued education to keep up with the rapid advancements that are changing in this field and all the new medications that are coming out. And lastly, you can become an MS certified specialist or MSCS through the Consortium of Multiple Sclerosis Centers. And thank you so much for listening. That is the conclusion of my project. Alexis, thank you so much for sharing. I love how you were able to really quantify the impact that specialty pharmacists can make practicing in an MS space, particularly around adherence, but also these clinical outcomes and coordination of care that our pharmacists spend so much time doing really make a big impact in patient outcomes. So thank you. Really great project. And we'll round things out with Christabel. Yeah, so my study looked at the evaluation of specialty pharmacy and clinical pharmacist services for patients with severe asthma requiring biologics. So a little bit of a background. My research evaluated our Harborview Medical Center at University of Washington. We had a specific chest clinic for patients who had severe asthma, and we wanted to investigate whether implementing our specialty pharmacy services impacted medication access and clinical outcomes for this set of patients. So historically at our Harborview chest clinic, patients who had severe asthma that required biologic treatments were referred to allergy clinics across UW Medicine for the initiation of treatment. And so this referral process was developed due to a lack of specialty pharmacy support within the chest clinic. And so as you can imagine, transferring clinics could lead to delays and possible loss to follow-up. And so in July of 2019, Harborview Chest Clinic was able to actually start a pilot program that provided some pharmacy services for this set of patient that required initiation of biologic treatment. And so during this time, clinical pharmacists started and monitored patients on biologics for asthma. And then we also got support from our outpatient pharmacy billing and other prior authorization team to help assist with medication access. And then finally, in February of 2022, this pilot program transitioned to a full specialty pharmacy service where we included pharmacy technician specialists that provided benefits investigation, submission of PAs, arranging co-payments and patient assistance and more. And then our clinical pharmacists also continued providing clinical pharmacy services for medication initiation, education, monitoring interventions and follow-up. And so really now that all this process has been implemented, we wanted to see what quantitative data we can gather to really evaluate the impact of this service. And so This study was really a retrospective cohort study of our patients in Harborview Chest Clinic. We included patients who were 18 and above, had severe asthma, and also had a referral for starting an asthma biologic, which included benralizumab, dupilumab, nepolizumab, or omalizumab. And so the outcomes that we were primarily looking at, so the primary outcome was the number of patients that required a biologic who actually started on a biologic. And then our secondary outcomes included one, which was time to start biologic treatment calculated from the date of the referral. And then we had other clinical outcomes, which was number of patients who had an ER visit or hospitalization for asthma exacerbation. And then the secondary clinical outcome was number of patients with steroid prescriptions for asthma exacerbation. The timeframe we looked at these clinical outcomes was up to six months 
after the referral for the biologic. And we also did a little subgroup analyses for those who started biologics and did a timeline from the start of biologic to up to six months after the start. And so for our results, I'll start with the number of people who actually started asthma biologic. In our pharmacy intervention cohort, 89% of those patients were able to start an asthma biologic. Compared to our historical cohort was only 54%. Our odds ratio was 6.9, and this was statistically significant. We also saw a time to start. And so for our pharmacy intervention cohort, we actually broke it down further into our pilot group and our specialty pharmacy group. So our pilot group, the median time to start asthma biologic was 35 days. And then our specialty pharmacy cohort was actually 40 days. And then the median time to start for our historical cohort was 190.5 days. And so the difference between our specialty groups and the historical group is statistically significant, but in between the two groups, so the pilot and the specialty group was not statistically different. Talking a little bit more about those two outcomes. So we really see that specialty pharmacy services was able to increase medication access for patients. And so specifically, the patients with severe asthma that had that pharmacy intervention were 6.9 times more likely to get access to asthma biologics compared to our historical cohort that didn't have any specialty pharmacy assistance. On top of that, the time it took for them to receive the biologic was significantly faster than the historical cohort. So for those who had pharmacy intervention, they were able to gain access to biologics in a little over one month, while it took patients in the historical cohort over six months to get access. Talking about our clinical outcomes, unfortunately, our study didn't find any statistically significant difference. However, it's likely because our study wasn't powered to find a difference. A little bit more on the numbers. So for our ER visits or hospitalizations for asthma exacerbation, our pharmacy intervention cohort, 18.5% of those patients had one of these outcomes versus 39% in our historical cohort. In for steroids prescription for asthma exacerbation, 63% of our pharmacy intervention group experienced this outcome versus 75.6% of our historical cohort. So while the difference was not statistically significant, it was favorable to our pharmacy intervention group. When we did our subgroup analyses, so this is specifically for all the patients who actually got an asthma biologic, ER visits or hospitalizations for asthma exacerbation occurred in 25% of our pharmacy intervention group versus 27.3% of our historical cohort. And then steroid prescriptions for asthma exacerbation was occurred in 58.3% of our pharmacy intervention group versus 63.6% of our historical cohort group. So while the outcome was not statistically significant, again, we did see a trend that the clinical outcomes occurred less in our pharmacy intervention cohort. This may have been impacted by the fact that patients in the pharmacy intervention group were more likely to get access to the biologics and were able to start treatment within six months of the referral for the asthma biologic. Specifically in our subgroup analyses of the outcomes, so this is for patients who've already started asthma biologics, the difference between our pharmacy intervention and historical cohort was 
a lot smaller. And this is consistent with the expected therapeutic impact, given that both groups started asthma biologics, and these are the clinical outcomes we expect to see. As an institution, we saw that the study was able to identify opportunities for workflow optimization, mostly because our pilot group actually had a shorter time to start the asthma biologics than our full specialty pharmacy cohort. And one caveat to consider is that the study actually looked only at the first four months of our full specialty pharmacy service. And the possible unfamiliarity with the workflow process compared to our pilot program, which has been running for three years, could have contributed to this lower time to start. Although the clinical significance of a difference in five days to start biologic is likely low. And if we were to review it now, which is about a year to the start of the full specialty pharmacy services at our Harborview Chest Clinic, we would expect to see more improvement in terms of the time to start the asthma biologics for our patients if it's not already in favor of our full specialty pharmacy service program. And I want to comment that one of the strengths of this study is that it really serves as a model for other clinics, hospitals, and institutions to explore the benefits of specialty pharmacy services in improving both patient care as well as outcomes. Specialty medications are complex and the process to obtain drug can be really difficult to navigate. And so having pharmacy experts who are familiar with the process can really bring value to streamlining the process for patients and most importantly, ensure that our patients get access to the medications that they need. Practitioners can do lots of great things, do lots of great analyses and diagnoses and try to come up with medication plans for our patients. But if they can't even get access to their drug, then all of that work might be in vain. And so I think this study really shows how much we can offer to our patients and specialty pharmacy services can really help them make sure that they get the care they need. Other things that we would like to see in the future as future directions, one is to evaluate the cost impact of being able to get medication access for our patients. Other things, maybe even to further reduce time to start treatment and see what methods we can investigate there. And then lastly, Having some larger sample sizes can provide more detail about our clinical outcomes as we are able to see some trends that favor specialty pharmacy services. And so really to wrap up this study, we saw that implementation of specialty pharmacy services increased medication access to asthma biologics for patients with severe asthma. And the implemented pharmacy services also decreased the time for patients to start treatment with biologic. And lastly, while the study lacked power to really identify statistically significant difference in both ER visits or hospitalization, as well as steroid use for asthma exacerbations in patients with severe asthma, we did see a trend in the lowering occurrence for patients with pharmacy intervention. So that's a quick summary of my study. Thank you, Christabel. That was excellent. And I don't think I could have said it better myself about the potential impact that health system specialty pharmacists can make on access and outcomes. So thank you so much to all of you for sharing your research projects and for the great work that you've done over the last year. I think we can all learn a lot from each of your studies. And that's all the time we have today. I want to thank our speakers for joining us today. 
If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources for specialty pharmacy practitioners at ashp.org. You can find member-exclusive offerings, such as the Specialty Pharmacy Resource Center, which includes examples of best practices, business development resources, and more. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Specialty Pharmacy. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.